wanted to find the most tense possible introduction from our guest plethora of playlists that would allow me to set the right vibe going into this episode. I believe uh, that, that did it. That absolutely did. I was actually quite surprised about this rather dystopian choice of music for your personal taste as I know it. But hey, it looks like me grinding you slowly down uh, has left some psychological effect on you. <laughs> oh, man. It has. It definitely has. I would like to welcome everyone to the 45th episode of Money Trees. It's a beautiful start to the week as we welcome one of the first people I met on my personal Web3 journey. This person is as kind, intelligent, and empathetic as it gets. They exemplify these qualities in all that they do. A leader on the Zora team, a multi-continent touring DJ, and a lover of quality human interaction. Welcome Mikhail Stangl to the show. How are you feeling Thank today? you. Thank you so much for these really, really kind words and this incredible um, in introduction. I mean, I feel like I feel like I should like clarify a few things. I mean, you were especially the part like internationally touring DJ. I mean, that hasn't happened, you know, in quite some time for obvious reasons. But then again, I'd crossed the border for my last gig. So in terms of PR speak, it checks out. I am an internationally touring DJ. Um, I'm okay. You know, it's it's a Monday uh, in, in Berlin. It's Monday evening. The world is in a very weird place right now so many things feel somewhat in us as if you are in a state of cognitive dissonance but um you know we we gotta continue to do what we love doing which is you know making the world a better place uh for you and me and everyone around us so to Mikhail the full extent refuses. of our individual abilities to you keep short to mixed short sentences <laughs> No, I refuse to make short sentences. <laughs> oh, no, no. I, I, I apologize for talking over you. Twitter had cut me out. No, there. it's okay. But um, just just to this, the point of PR speak, it's not PR speak. The fact that you can tour on different continents really says something about the sound. It says something about your ability to curate and to put together shows that relate with people that come from completely different walks of life. And that is that is a skill. That is one that not a lot of people have, even in the DJ world. Even people that, you know, are huge names. There are certain places where they just can't go because they don't understand the culture. They don't understand the sounds of that area. And so to be able to, you know, have that on your belt, it's a it's very impressive. There are many impressive things that I feel like you do. I'm gonna give you all the flowers on the show, even if you do Thank feel you like so much adding your own anecdotes to it i'm i'm okay with that as well but uh you you made a really I, mean, I, I do take i do take that one thing uh, in terms of you know being able to tell certain intercultural narratives through music i read actually yesterday a really funny tweet that uh, djing is making songs kiss um which i incredibly uh, love but that that is that is that that is an aspect of curation you know curation can be also something that is a little bit more more let's say intuitive but nonetheless includes also certain cultural intercultural references so these things are not arbitrary but in one way or the other you know connected maybe through certain rhythm forms or certain you know genesis of the sound or even you know, through relationships that one only knows because they know the stories behind the music. But nonetheless, that that is true. I do take that. I think I'm quite okay, quite good with that. Even even in your responses, it's so clear the breadth of your music knowledge. And I think that when we were first connected, that was one of the things that really just impressed me was the level of understanding you had about the technicalities, but also the cultural histories that go into music. And, you know, I, I, you may, I don't know where this comparison will fall on your like meter, but when I think of the biggest internet music nerds, that is Mr. Fantano's 
headline. But I would argue that you are probably one of the biggest music nerds that I know in any genre or anywhere in the world. Where did your love for music start? Oh, um, I mean, hmm. okay, so thank you. This is an incredible compliment because you're the person working with international superstars. So uh, that that means a lot coming coming from you. Uh, But uh, what is my inability to focus on anything else but music that barely anyone listens to come from? Um, What kind of childhood trauma got me into this this place? Uh, I mean... You know, I've been always fascinated. Um, <clears throat> I can tell you. I mean, ultimately, not the music that I experienced but I, as a child, because when you know, I was born in the Soviet Union, so there wasn't really, you know, that much music to begin with. Uh, uh, we had, I don't know, you know, like whatever made it through the Iron Curtain. One of the first records I remember is actually Whitney Houston. Funny enough, even though we called her back then Whitney Houston. Um, but when I came to, to, to Germany in 1991, you know, like all the music really was completely new to me. I had no context for anything because I grew up obviously removed from Western cultural context or pretty much removed. So this fascination with things that are new for which I don't have context, things that are emerging, you know, that is, I think, the driving force for that. And ever since you know, I've been I've been obsessed with it, and this is also why electronic music in particular is so interesting uh, for it because it is very you know futuristic. It's ever evolving. It's very easy. You know, new things manifest in it very easily, and new things through you know various production techniques like sampling, like you know, like basically you're like quoting um, new contexts can be created for sounds that have existed for quite a while and uh, that is just literally the fascination that the fact that creativity doesn't seem to to come to an end you know wherever you look there's always something that is new exciting for which you don't have context yet you know i would say that that's the main driver of my curiosity Woohoo! See, yep. again, Mikhail, I I love hearing you talk about music. So we're gonna stay on this for a little bit longer. We touched on your DJing and how that has taken you all over the world, and it literally has. Can you talk about what it was like starting to DJ? Actually, yeah, just start there. What was it like starting? Yeah, to DJ? I mean, you know, like obviously, I I I got really lucky um, because I grew up in Germany, in an area that was kind of very important to German DJ culture in the 90s. So a lot of the music genres that kind of now dominate the clubs, like techno, trance, or even harder stuff like GABA, kind of, you know, was, was came about in that area. And there was also gonna radio, a presence of underground music on, on, on national radio, which is how I got very quickly into the stuff that interested me early, which was like kind of drum, bass and jungle. Um, and of course you got immediately exposed to, to DJing, immediately exposed to the role as a, of the DJ, both as somebody, you know, who facilitates an experience, but also guides the experience, but also is, you know, creative part, part of that. Um, so I wanted to become a DJ pretty early, but I also unfortunately grew up fairly poor and had no money for records or record players, despite trying, you know, to do the, like, you know, like being paperboy, working at McDonald's, that kind of stuff. Uh, and when I moved to Berlin, I actually started to, to produce um, and produce my own edits. At that time, you know, the second wave of dub, the so-called second wave of dubstep had just started 2005, 2006. It's a very exciting time where every tune that came out at that time kind of felt relevant, revolutionary, like it was changing the fabric of music as we knew it. Obviously it was converging with other, you know, um, Afro-diasporan sounds out of UK like grime. So kind of adding your own note to it, doing your own edits with music that kind of wasn't part of that. That's how I started to do live set DJ hybrids and then you know, slid into Berlin DJ culture very, very quickly. And again, you know, it's it's all about, about how do you contextualize things that have a relationship but might not 
be an obvious relationship. And this is, I think, you know, like some people call my style of DJing eclectic because they're like, holy shit, there's so many genres. But usually all of these things are somehow intertwined or a logical progression of each other, you know? So if you're within two hours or three hours or four hours, or if you play in Berlin, sometimes six hours, you know, get from 90 BPM to 240 BPM, um, this is not like an erratic journey that happens by accident, but usually, you know, one that can also be, you know, uh, retold why, you know, certain things can be paired with each other. Sorry, this is a really long, long theoretical answer on no, the art no, of teaching. <laughs> I love it because to me, it makes sense why you believe in the Web3 and NFT space. Being able yeah. to contextualize sound in this way. And we think about it's, it's something that you've actually said before. You know, you talk about the interoperability in Web3 and the ability that that gives artists to create these very intimate spaces and, and you know, create these mm -hmm. like intimate practices. And mm -hmm. we've been doing that with sound. And now Web3 is even opening the door for more people to do that with any level of, or, you know, a, a quite a few different mediums. And mm -hmm. I think that's a really good segue into Zora. And mm -hmm. I remember when I read the Zora white paper, and that was one of the first conversations we had outside of music was just talking about Zora. Because I read that mm -hmm. paper and it seemed like <laughs> it, it was the, the most blissful white paper I had read to, to date, where it was highly technical, but mm -hmm. the goal that it seemed to be reaching for felt like it had so much um, of humanity's best interest in mind, which I know sounds like very cliche and over the top, but I would argue that it's a mission that you all are building over there that seems very possible. I remember reading Jacob's article on hyperstructures again, and the first two papers that I read just in regards to Zor both made me feel that way, where it was this forward-looking approach to this revolutionary technology that we weren't seeing from many other players in the space. I think Zora mm -hmm. is patient in their approach. I think that yeah, it, it, it feels it feels good. And I know good is very subjective, but to me, that is the way to dumb it down and just say when you look at other things, they can feel a little icky. And Zora mm -hmm. never was. What inspired you or what did you love about Zora and the team that made you want to get involved? I mean, you know, like before I get to that, I wanted to say something when you try, you know, hinting at the segue between, you know, my practice as a DJ and then also my involvement in Web3 and the kind of interoperability of sound. What I personally found particularly intriguing in that intersection of culture and technology is if it refer, you know, referring to electronic music, I mean, electronic music and club culture is also techno-social construct. You know, it's highly reliant on certain technological advances, like you know, all the electronic music instruments, but also the kind of futurism that is embedded within within many of these narratives. Um, but also, you know, it's it's a social space, it's a political space. You know, you go. Often and most of the time, so the genesis of electronic music club culture is that you went partying, yes, of course, for hedonism, for fun, you know, for kind of transcendent experiences. But very often, you know, clubs are social and political safer spaces. And um, very often these are used to figure out new configurations of society. You know, certain social utopias are very often kind of experimented with in clubs. Maybe, you know, certain experiments when it comes to self-expression, you know, aesthetical or, 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 you know, sexual or so forth and so on. Or maybe, you know, even political questions that are being negotiated, you know, in the culture that is embedded within, within, within electronic music and underground, you know, club culture. So there's, there's a very big connection to, to Web3, which is... Again, a techno-social construct. It's a highly complex technological tool set, some of which is, is arcane to me, but also it aims at kind of renegotiating certain social relationships that we have built in society or that are enhanced or governed uh, by technology. Um, 
through you know technological means. So that is what got me fascinated in technology as a cultural space because you know until very recently I was more a curator and a cultural worker that was using an online media platform to to tell the stories that I wanted to tell. But looking at a level deeper, you know, how can technological infrastructure impact how culture grows and how it also benefits from a social political point of view a greater uh, subset of society. This sparked my interest in Web3 and of course, you know, Zora in particular because Zora is like very few other things driven by principle. You know, there's profit motive and there's principle. Um, and very often, you know, you can judge a person by by what they do when the question is about their principles, you know. Everyone will at some point in their life come to a, to a certain moment where they have to choose between am I doing something that's profitable for me, but against my principles, or do I do something that is not profitable for me, but I stay a principled person. This, of course, requires that the, your principles are moral or, you know, ethical or, you know, good. But nonetheless, I assume that this is a given in the context of this conversation. And um, Zora, you know, is principled because it has decided to build technology in a way that centers the needs of the people using the technology versus the needs of the people who are building the technology. And that is ultimately why we ended up in this, and pardon my French shit show, that it, the internet is in the year 2022, because we're coming off the back of 20 years of platform capitalism, where the only driving motive of designing things very often was the return on investment for whoever owned the technology. You know, interface design decisions were made not with the best interest of the users in mind, but with the best interest of the people who designed the interface in mind, which was, you know, somebody like Mark Zuckerberg, you know, whose, whose financial needs and hyper-individualism, you know, led to the fact that we have on one side the second coming of fascism and on the other side a whole generation of young people with body dysmorphia because this was, you know, driving money into the hands of Instagram. So, and that fact was you already said, you know, that there's something to the narrative that hints at a will to do good, at a will to do, to make technology that benefits people versus making use of them is the reason why I, Zora was the first Web3 company I looked at and the reason why I'm still involved with it now, 18 months down the line. So eloquently said, much better than I did. Thank you for adding context to when I said it's good. It is principled mm -hmm. was a much uh, more accurate description of your approach mm -hmm. and the technology that's being built. And the idea that, you know, something can be simultaneously free forever to utilize mm -hmm. and extremely valuable to own. That is a quote mm -hmm. from the Hyperstructures article that I said exactly. earlier that really helps kind of surmise to me the approach and why people are always like, well, what's in it for them? Why, why would they be doing this principal thing? Who's funding that? How does this all work? And it's like, no, there is a balance that comes between the ability to make profit and deliver on something that aligns with your principles. So shout mm -hmm. out to Zora. I, I mean, mean this is a general, I mean, this is a general, you know, I mean, yes, the question, what is in that? What is in it for me is a conversation that we find ourselves having very often when it comes, you know, to to politics and in particular, you know, what is our individual responsibility towards our fellow citizens, you know, both on a local and national or international level. And you know that depending on how, uh, where on the, uh, you know, if there's like an axis between socialism on one side, neoliberalism on the other side, depending on how you, your society aligns to one or the other end, you know, these questions have more logical answers for some and more illogical for others, you know, like the, the sense of, you know, like asking me or any European citizen, like make this universal healthcare make sense is, you know, a very weird question to ask because everybody would say it immediately, yes, of course. And you know yourself that in the US, this is a way more complicated conversation. So yes, this is again, you know, how do you perceive society? What do you think is society, like societal contracts, you know, that 
that kind of smart contract that our society operates in and what responsibilities do we have towards each other and um within that you always have then the both, the, both poles individualism or mutuality you know and i tend to be on the side of mutuality of course where do you think web3 as a whole is heading and now i know that is a huge question to answer from a, a general sense. But when I say that, it's more along the lines of, are we on a good track or on, there, there goes that word again. Are we mm -hmm. on a net positive track or do you think many more things have to break for it to reach a positive mm -hmm. uh, place? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I've been thinking about that quite a lot just also because, you know, the geopolitical situation in this part of the world has changed, you know, significantly over the last uh, six weeks. I mean, not that the world was, you know, free of conflict before, and every conflict that was happening over the last, you know, in my lifetime, no matter if it's, you know, what was happening in Myanmar or Yemen or Ethiopia or Palestine, you know, all are equally tragic. Um, but there's also certain geopolitical forces at play right now that just make you reconsider some of the concepts and, you know, ideas that you might have, you know, thought were important, which whether they are important at this point in history or not. Mm. So I've been thinking a lot about this. Um, and I do think that the one aspect about Web3 that is net positive is that we are currently in a process of acquiring something that we have largely abandoned in the late 90s, which is an attempt at digital literacy. You know, so digital literacy is basically the ability to interact with the technological systems around you with critical distance and an understanding what the effects of your interaction are. And this is something that we did not have at large um, within society, not just aiming at, you know, certain um, Barriers of access to that understanding, technological barriers, geological, uh, geographic barriers, or, you know, other sociopolitical, socioeconomic factors, but rather, you know, how we were, even as people spent a lot of the time on the Internet, you know, understood what was actually happening uh, around us. And we could not understand that because all of these systems were black boxes, you know, these were closed systems where we very often had very little agency over the output that we were putting in um, and that is you know data brokers i just saw this morning a video by what's his name john oliver about you know data broker businesses and what they you know uh, do and this is an effect of that or result of that so we did not have this um, digital literacy which means that we also didn't have much agency you know if you do not know what the things you do on the internet do with you beyond what you see as a reaction of the interface, then you have no, no agency. So Web3, because of its complexity, because of a lot of it is being kind of realigned, reshuffled, built on you, uh, drives a huge amount of people into engaging in a critical way with these highly complex technologies. They understand way more about how is this structured? Why are certain things the way they are? You know, so I input X, I get the output Y, and um, people understand that. That is net positive because critical thinking is always net positive. You know, like anyone who's capable of questioning has already, you know, like that, that's 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 good. Um, what's critical and why I'm personally afraid is that the we're also coming off the back of a really dangerous time in, in, in our society. You know, attention spans have shrunk tremendously. The halftime of media of any kind of, of digital asset has shrunk significantly. We live in a very, very quick, fast-paced and nearly manic environment. So I, um, and that is also, you know, based on the fact that the last 20 years were driven by this very toxic startup mentality of disrupting things for the sake of disruption. You know, this is when I initially said, you know, Mark Zuckerberg's hyper individualism. This is what I meant by it, you know, that you have individuals like tech entrepreneurs or groups of people who think that their individual approach to a thing 
and even if it disrupts um, commonplace, agreed upon societal, you know, societal ways to handle things is a better way to go about it than what society has decided we do. You know, so disruption is very often rooted in a hyper-individualism or somebody thinks I know it better than millions and millions of people and, you know, tons of established processes. And then you get something like Uber or Airbnb. Um, in Web3, I have the fear that because so much of it was new, because so many people that are building it are also so young and also come from a certain socioeconomic class and a certain, you know, geographical uh, location that we get something that is a little bit on one hand ahistorical because it does not take into account the overall global development of technology but then again in its understanding of what society is and how society manifests itself it's rooted in a very very particular blueprint of society and that is the kind of US American you know uh, blueprint and that as much, you know, this is not, I'm not trying to give a critique of America, but that is also a way to go about things that is very specific to a very specific part of the world and does not apply um, to the rest of the world. So if, you know, the new internet is built according to this blueprint, then we get again, weird uh, phenomena, dysfunctionalities and inequalities. And given the very financial nature of a lot of Web3 things, um, I'm somewhat wary of that. Yeah, you touched on so many fire points in there, and I agree with so much that you said. You know, thinking about the, well, one, the increase in transparency in what's actually being built, I do believe that that will, as you mentioned, you know, further digital literacy and allow people to critically think more about the systems that they're participating in that they give their information to, that they give their time and attention to. And we will see what that does to you know, the general public as that becomes more and more commonplace. You know, it, it, it's interesting thinking about NFTs. Actually, I don't, I don't want to tangent too much on this. Uh, mm-hmm. I also love the idea of removing the black box and allowing people to have access to some of the information that's going on, you know, Mm -hmm. even me personally, not to plug my own thing, but it's like my idea behind the blueprint was just Mm -hmm. to do that, was to provide a way for this to feel like less of a daunting task, for it to feel like, hey, this is a space that you can come into and have information provided to you so it doesn't seem like it's a bunch of terms and terminology that you've never, ever seen or heard before. That's only known, like I said, it's arcane. And there's elements of that that become difficult to a point where people will eventually just give up. And the same imbalances of power will recreate themselves in this space. So there's a lot of good potential in there, but then a lot of things to be weary of along the way. And yeah, I, I really love your explanation and breakdown of that. I cannot wait to clip that and and put that on the show. As far as, you know, I've I've only ever been I've only ever lived in America. You know, I just started traveling outside of the country a couple years ago. And even that culture shock was very different than different to me. And so much of what's happening in this space not is not only being led by Americans, but a lot of what's going on with like the EU and the laws are limiting a lot of the innovation in the space and the way American government the the american government is moving on crypto there are some potential harsh laws but for the most part it's the wild wild west right now and there's a lot that's being propagated before the rules are getting set up so it's all very very interesting to see how it will shake out i'm personally quote unquote bullish on it i believe that despite what's going on like you know, to your point, like there was there were previous conflicts. Clearly, the last six weeks have been at a level that's relatively unfamiliar to the rest of the world. But it was very interesting to me, even thinking about the donations and the ability to send money through crypto rails. And I know there were a lot of negatives that went along with that too. But I know personally, with us and our team being able to get money to our artists through this method that we would have otherwise been unable to, and 
that one small piece, even though, you know, that's one group of people and one artist, I think at scale becomes one of the, those net positives that we can have in the space. And there really, really wasn't much of a question in any of my response mm-hmm. there outside of, I love the way you articulated that. And I think you touched on some fire, fire mm-hmm. point. I mean, um, you know, I do not want, I do not want in any way, um, in any way erase the work or presence or ideas of many people that are in the Web3 space that are not in the US, that are not in Europe. You know, you know yourself, I mean, we're both in constant touch and involved with many great teams, artists, you know, builders, people who think these technologies in a way that are, are on one hand specific to their community needs but also very different in terms of what they try to achieve um um in terms of what they try to achieve as you know as a result for for society at large so that of course is all present but it's also a fiscal fact so to say that a lot of the money that a lot of the investment that a lot of the people kind of leading these conversations and not leading these conversations because they have the best ideas, but because they have that position, that proximity to money and power that they can lead these conversations. Um, that very often, you know, these come from 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 the US, you know, they come from certain, you know, again, sociodemographic groups. And that is that is something that is, you know, needs needs to change if we are really serious about this kind of radical language of liberation that Web3 very often very often um, uses or sometimes appropriates, but that there's a real life opportunity for not only generational wealth, but also to use technologies that until very recently were available to some privileged few and now can be built on scale, disregarding you know, your access to to these technologies, that is incredible. And yes, the Ukraine war has been a proof of concept for that because, as you you know, have been sending money to 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 your creative collaborator, you know, we've been sending money to many of the refugees, you know, that were stuck in Ukraine and had you know to 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 get out. So there is a proof of concept of that this technology can create. You know, it's it's it's. It's functional, you know, it's functional, it's there. You know, I'm still critical of uh, many of the things, you know, when it comes to cryptocurrencies, um, but some of the ideas that this all kind of created over the last uh, 18 months, they will not go away. And the most, I think the most impactful ideas are less the ones of financial, you know, freedom, but rather about um, how do we, use these technologies to align interest but also to participate in value creation in digital value creation and then also participate in that value that is being created digitally because until very recently these two things were more or less kind of separate you know you would create digital value on a digital platform like instagram but the money that would be more or less made with that value that you are created that was completely separate it was in a different financial system it was you know a different even digital you know language or unit and now these things can be one of the same you know tokenized and i'm not a specialist on tokenomics no way you know i'm actually really bad with money and numbers but i understand that this interdependence now of creating value digitally through your participation which we all do and then also being able to benefit from the monetary value this interaction uh, creates because these are two of the same things um, now that's pretty powerful and needs to be explored especially when you pair it with stuff like workers owned businesses many of the nft and web3 platforms that we're looking at are de facto cooperatives they're worker owned businesses and looking at you know the very urgent very current conversations around unionization especially in the usa there's a huge argument to be made to explore these things further extremely powerful i would even say you know as as we're sitting here talking i'm kind of reminded of the relatively cliche quote that children are the future and you know we talked about how many of the people that are building in this space it's not necessarily the fact that they have the best ideas, but they just have that access. And it does skew relatively young 
which is interesting to me for a lot of reasons, but speaking outside of America or Europe or even Asia, when we look at the continent of Africa, that is where the largest youth population exists. And we think about that accessibility where I've talked to numerous artists from the continent and the two largest blockchains aren't really cost efficient to operate there. And if we can find a way to empower the best ideas without people that are not of the diaspora being the ones who capitalize, it becomes very, very exciting to me. And so, yeah, I don't have the exact solution, but it is something that in the coming years, I will be focused on providing the opportunity to just because that excites the hell out of me seeing what these very, very, very resourceful kids can do as they are given more and more access, more and more resources. Mm -hmm. But this is also, you know, when we talk about, you know, cultural hegemonies is that this technology now is so powerful, but also so easily to to be implemented and to be used because, you know, the the idea of just taking a protocol or some sort of of open source technology and fork it and then make it make it your own um, is is there. It's, you know, part of the it's a feature, you know, it's not a bug, which means that also having the the um, confidence of saying, you know, only because these are currently the two most used ecosystems, but we believe that for our community, for our industries, for what we are trying to build, there's a different alternative and to believe in, you know, the power that one could have if they would do it ignoring the hegemonies that exist right now. There's a lot of potential in that. And I do think that this will also go this is also going to happen because of young people, especially across African continent, South America, or other non-European, non-North American countries won't be able to participate in this. You know, they will just take the best ideas that are there because they are open source and build something equally powerful but more equitable for themselves. So at least I hope they do, they will do. Yeah, I think I think with that it becomes a balance of, you know, the powers that be trying to keep the status quo and being able to drive adoption on any of these new creations. And yeah, it's a bit a bit uh this is all conjecture at the moment, but I think that we will see many of the things we're speaking on come to pass. This took a I don't want to say a, a serious turn as if that wasn't the entire plan for it. But Em, I, I love I love talking to you and hearing some of your more thoughtful approaches on life and just the state of the world. It's always refreshing to me. You know, I, I every time we have these conversations offline, it's I, I state that there. And so this isn't something new. I always tell people money trees are a lot of the conversations I have out on the fringes anyway, and I'm just bringing them online for you to hear what I talk about with some of my friends. I would love, before I let you get out of here, to talk on some slightly lighter topics that just are about you. What? What do you mean? <laughs> so you are a vegan, correct? I Yes, sir, I am now uh, 15, 15 years, I think. What led to you being a vegan? I mean, you wanted a light answer. <laughs> do you really, do you really expect that I'll be? Do you expect that I would give you an answer? You like, whoa, you know, the snacks were better. No, I mean, veganism. Veganism is veganism is a political project more than anything. You know, ultimately, the access to food or the privilege of being able to decide what you eat and what you don't eat. And most people don't realize that in our society where also multinational corporations that profit from the fact that people can only access low quality nutrition is a highly profitable business, which means that to be able to access high quality nutrition is, is, is a privilege, you know, and that is inherently fucked. And we're not even talk about, you know, the fact that animal lives being made into a tradable commodity. Now, again, this is not, me trying to say, you know, that the way I look at society is a blueprint for each and every society there is. There's plenty of context where, you know, animal-based protein as a source of nutrition makes complete sense 
infrastructurally or culturally, and I would never argue with that. But for the larger part of society, you know, this is this is this is pure capitalism and one that is incredibly destructive, both for us individually, but and also for society as a whole. So when you know I started to live with my own money. I kind of decided first, of course, to opt out from it because I was like, yo, this is a system that I just can't support. And then also, you know, psychological reasons because animals, you know, kind of find the idea of eating animals disturbing to say the least. Um, but the more you you engage with it, you know, the more of a political project it, it becomes because, you know, food is human rights, food is workers' rights, food is geopolit geopolitics, you know, food is sustainability and questions of ecology. So that's ultimately why 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 I've been doing that, because it I think it kind of reflects some of the other values, you know, that 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 I apply in my everyday in their day life. And you know, I've been taught multiple times that apparently there's a Sex in the City episode, which a show I never watched, but apparently many people have watched where there's certain conversations about vegans and their benefits. So I guess, you know, even in this regard, I am, I am, yeah, I made the smart decision to be one. Yeah. And the snacks are better. <laughs> no, I didn't. To answer your question, I did not think that that would be lighter. I was being a little bit facetious with <laughs> with that transition. Um, it was something that I would imagine you had a charged answer to. And just while we were talking on those topics, again, I really appreciate the perspective you provide. I believe that we're all amalgamations of the people that we spend time around and the conversations that we have and the people that we you know, allow to influence us or even whether it's uh, inadvertently or advertently. Is advertently a word? I don't know if that's... Inadvertently is a word. No, no, advertently, like the opposite of inadvertently. Anyway, I'm going to check on that. <laughs> I would assume it's this, so it, so it sounds like a word. That's, yeah, yeah. Like advertently, um, adversarial, you know, like, but I'm not a linguist, you know, and English is just, just my, not my mother tongue. Nor... Well, it is my mother tongue, and I'm still not 100% sure on that one. But I digress. An actual light topic I will bring up and just to add some shine to. T still to this day, I remember we had our first video chat, and I was like, mm -hmm. holy shit. I have never in my life seen such an HD Zoom call. And you just have an amazing setup. So shout out to you. Shout out to the attention to detail you've paid to that setup. And shout out to my skincare routine that I can afford myself being seen on HD. Shout out to your skincare routine. So before you go, you have to share either your skincare routine or the equipment you have in your setup that provides such crisp quality. And skincare routine, um, because most people do the most basic things completely wrong. And this is one of the things that that is very easy to invest some time into, doesn't require much work and makes you just, you know, like the best thing about go to go about your day is like when you look into the mirror and you look at yourself and you're like, you know what, this is actually all pretty cool what I see there. You know, and to contribute to that, you have to, to do through small details. So clean your face, you know, like get yourself a soap-free, uh, face wash doesn't need to be anything fancy just like something soap free and then get a toner but most importantly an alcohol free toner because alcohol dries out your skin that will make you look wrinkled many brands put alcohol in the toner uh, no no why witch hazel can only recommend it um, use a little serum you know to get your skin on the right ph level and use in the evening a moisturizer in the morning, daily SPF. Most of the wrinkles and the tiredness and also, you know, pigmentation, stuff like that comes through the fact that people don't use SPF. And even these days when you're inside all day, still use um, uh, some protection because that UV light comes through your windows onto your precious, precious skin. And if you start doing that in your 20s then in your 40s you still look somewhat you know decent especially if you pair it with a vegan uh, diet 
and avoid drinking and smoking. So that is my little, you know, 12 steps to be at least looking like a functional adult uh, <laughs> recommendation. <laughs> I love it. We might have to add everyone's beauty tips to compare, but I will say that is the if money trees first. That seed will be planted. I will adjust a little bit of my own skincare routine based off some of the elements I've heard that I am now missing. And mm -hmm. I would love to look as dashingly taut in my face as I do currently. <laughs> I mean, you, 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 you said that you look like a taut. <laughs> No, 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 no. Taught, like my skin is my skin is taut. Oh, ah, oh, sorry, sorry. Yes, was a yes. misunderstanding. Was just like that's not not a no, cheap no. joke on your brow. No. <laughs> you know, I had to give up a little bit of the self-deprecating jokes. I did stand-up comedy in college, and they were like, "We we just don't believe you. We don't believe that you're having a hard time with some of this." And Are you, okay. anyway, I digress again. That was you, look, you were looking too good and too successful for these type of jokes. You know, you said it, not me. Anyway, <laughs> no, I'm mm -hmm. kidding. Seriously, before I let you go, there are two questions yeah. we ask every Money Trees guest. The first question is going to be, what is your seed phrase? Now, I know in this space, your seed phrase is normally your account recovery key. I just do not believe that that is a scary enough term. If you are new and trying to learn about it, and someone tells you to protect your seed phrase, it doesn't sound like that's something that if you lose access to, you will lose all of your assets. So here on Money Trees, we have repurposed seed phrase to be a saying, a quote, a slogan, a motto, a lyric that you live by that embodies your approach to your career, to your craft. So mm -hmm. Mikhail Stangl, what is your mm -hmm. seed phrase? Uh, I just want to be real with you. Um, that is something that has been for many years my bio. And even though that sounds like slightly weird or, you know, kind of inconsequential, I mean, ultimately, what is what does that mean to be real with someone? That means that you first needs to be you first need to be your honest, true self. You know, you cannot be real with someone if you yourself don't know who you are as a person, both in a positive and in a negative extension, because if you know your own failures then, and limitations, then you can you know, be more of a compassionate and empathetic human being. And you also extend that to other people that you do not, you know, betray them, that you are, you know, your real self, that you are driven by your principles and not by something that 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 is, what's called, um, what's the word for that? Yeah, that you just sincere, open, um, truthful and, and 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 real. That's that's my seed phrase. I would say. I just want to be real with you. Mm -hmm. I love it. The second question is going to be: When we list this one of one money trees number forty-five with the signature base face and the yes. finger guns on Zora. Yo, shout mm -hmm. out to Zora, y'all. Like you know, I I I've been meaning to drop this thread that I wrote about why I love putting out my NFTs through Zora and I will sooner than later, but it's, it's just a seamless experience and it's actually on the blockchain. I love the way the collection looks, interacts with my contract perfectly, my listings. Anyway, not to turn this into more uh, propaganda, but shout out to Zora. We're going to list this one of one NFT <laughs> mm -hmm. on Zora. What is the price going to be? Oh, I'm setting the price. Yes, hmm, I did not know Guess that. The note. Uh, I mean, I mean, it's it's my. It's, I mean, it's my. It's my face. You know, it's priceless. <laughs> uh, uh, I've not thought about that. I mean, I want. You know, I want. Damn it! Now you like you like. I've actually I've not sold an NFT yet. So you know that these long threads of how to price your NFTs get like really, really complicated and, and people have mathematical formulas to do so to yield the highest possible result. Um, various forms of auctions are being applied. But let's just start with 0 0.02 ETH. That seems for me 
like um you know that someone will probably buy it and if it really has value then it will find its real value in the upper echelons of bidding wars but i do hope that there's just you know somebody with a little bit of ethereum that the one person that deserves it and i don't want them to pay too much to, for it see i did not want to deal with pricing these nfcs to me i wanted to focus on the guest and the conversation and create some audio and digital art that when i look back 20 years from now i will love to have immortalized on the blockchain i love seeing the range and just the thought that the guests go into pricing their own nfts whether some may find it outrageously high or outrageously low and underpriced i think it's all interesting and we'll see how the economics of it plays out but to me again another shout out to zora i put these on the blockchain and then they're there and ideally eth they will outlive me as long as eth stands and it will be quite the collection of lovely faces to have come on money trees and been immortalized in the form of these notes so and i'm very happy that i'm one of the i'm happy that i'm one of these faces i am too genuinely and sincerely thank you for joining us today this has been as always an incredible and educational conversation i appreciate your perspective yeah, for sure. And uh, we'll be chopping. We have tons of other things in the work that I need to get up with you about. So um, You know what to find me. I rarely disappear from that very uh, place that you see in high definition. So ping me when you need me. With your beautiful, soft purple lights. It's such a good setup. It's such a... It's, or let me, is it purple? Is it lavender? Like, it is, is, that, a, is, is a... It is a RGB light, so it technically on my light it is a setting of 247, um, but I would say it is purple. So it's there. It is. It's, it's, we gave you we gave you a little piece of the setup right there. Okay. <laughs> um, Alrighty, friends. Okay. Um, yeah. Enjoy your week. We'll talk soon. Same to you, and thank you so much. I'm looking forward to uh, to. To listen to this actually. I think we said a couple of smart things. Alrighty, have a wonderful week, my friend. Peace out.